Our um, uh, senior pastor a few years ago, John Sartell, called this the scariest passage in the Bible. If you Google Matthew 7, 21 through 22, you will find words like terrifying, scary. In fact, the Gospel Coalition wrote an article that's entitled, How to Survive the Scariest Passage in the Bible. Why is this so scary? Jesus says directly here that there will be a distinction between those who enter the kingdom of heaven and those who do not. There is no neutral with Jesus. You either are his or you are not his. And so the question that I've titled this, does he know you? Because as we'll see, what you say might not actually matter. As I've prayed about this and thought about this, uh, I thought of three types of people that might be listening this morning, and and, and there could be others, but three that my heart kind of went to. One is the most obvious that this passage is addressing, and that is the proud, the self-righteous, those who parade their religious resume to Jesus. This is the group that this section of Christ's sermon is intended for directly. He just talked about false prophets. He talked about false teaching. He talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. And here he's talking about those that call him Lord and do all these wonderful things in his name, but Jesus doesn't know them. These are the ones who parade their religious commitment around, those who are defensive about their religious involvement, and God is opposed to the proud. So if that's you, your religious works will not save you. The second group is those that come to this passage and are overly introspective. I'm very aware that many of you hear a passage like this and immediately run to a deep and dark and harmful self-examination. You mean the demon casters and the miracle workers and the mighty works don't go to heaven? What hope do I have? I can't even... Read my Bible once a week. This too is a form of pride. It just focuses on the self in a detriment way. But hear me say, your lack of religious works will not condemn you. There's a third group that I'm painfully aware of over the last several years. And this is the wounded. If you've been under the leadership of a pastor, a teacher, a parent, an elder, a coach, That's like the people I described at first, the proud and self-righteous. The chances are you have been under an oppressive religious system. People who have prayed the religious works around tend to wound those closest to them. Self-righteousness is very dangerous and harmful. And if that's you, I hope you walk out of here hearing Jesus is not like that. He is not one of the oppressive people. You should look to him. And be healed. So, with that caveat, let's let's approach this passage. And like every every passage in the Bible, it's anchored firmly in the whole pericope of Scripture. The Bible, from beginning to end, uses a, a kingdom language to describe God's coming kingdom that will last forever. From Genesis one to Revelation twenty two, there is a kingdom that God intends to to have and rule and reign forever and ever. In fact, when he made Adam and Eve, he told them to have dominion over the world, that they were to be little kings and queens, ruling God's creation. Kingdom language is everywhere. In 
Matthew may be, may be one of the most prominent. 34 times of the 75 in the New Testament, 34 times he uses the word kingdom to talk about God's, God's presence, God's will, God's redemption. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' manifesto about his kingdom. In fact, he starts the whole sermon saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Please note, he did not say, blessed are those who do a lot of good religious activity. Blessed are those who cast out demons. Blessed are those who do miracles. No, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right off the bat, he's dealing with the oppressive kingdoms in the world. He starts with the law. The law is very oppressive because we can't keep it. So he says things like, you've heard it say, uh, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, I tell you, if you're angry, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard it say, said, don't lust. I tell you, if you uh, don't commit adultery. If you have lust in your heart, you've, you've committed, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The, the law was oppressive, and it was meant to point us to the one who would fulfill the law completely, which is Jesus. And then as the sermon goes on, he starts talking about things like money and clothes in your life. And he says, don't worry about these things, for your Father in heaven knows you need them. Uh, the birds of the field, don't worry about these. The, the lilies of the, of, the, of, the, of the pond, don't worry about these. And your, and your Father in heaven clothes them. How much more is he going to do that for you? Because this group of people hearing this sermon sat under a very oppressive governmental regime. High taxation, high military presence, uh, totally hypocritical, hypocritical officials. But he says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. And here in chapter seven, he deals with the oppression of religion. Beware the false wolves or in sheep's clothing. Beware of the trees that bear bad fruit. Enter through the narrow gate. And so Jesus is going head on to the oppression that religious self-righteousness has. So let's read the passage one more time. Let it land on us, and then I'll, 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 I'll lead us through it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. He starts by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, just because you utter some biblically true and even faithful words does not mean you possess the real thing. Jesus' brother James in his epistle said this, you believe God is one, good. The demons believe that also. Lord, Lord, just because you say Lord, Lord, the, the phrase here is a, is a repetition to show emphasis. This, is, this means the one in charge. Lord, you're the one in charge. Submitting to the lordship of Jesus by doing his will, not just calling him Lord. He would later say, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Paul says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Entrance to the king, kingdom of God is not formulaic. Entrance to the kingdom of God is not about what you say you believe. The king has to let you in. Jesus would say in John 10, I am the gate. 
I have to let you in. You don't get to jump over, sneak around, weasel your way in, debate your way in, defend your way in. I choose who comes in. The Lord knows who are his. And that's what he says next. But the one who comes in is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, which begs the ultimate question, what is that? I want to go to heaven. What is the will of God? Come back to that. Because he goes on. He says, on that day, many will say to me, what is he talking about on that day? That day, the day of reckoning, the day of judgment, the day that Jesus comes back to bring his kingdom to fullness. This is a day when the scroll will be unrolled, having all of its seals broken, and God will give the full picture of his kingdom on earth. On that day, many will say. Now, I need to just pause here and say this is the word that gives this, this passage such heaviness. It's the word many. Just as a caveat, I had a, a seminary professor who said, Will, one of the things you're going to have to learn and grow as a preacher is you're going to be good at sticking the dagger in. You've got to learn to take the dagger out. Oh, I need to stick the dagger in, friends. The word here says many. How do you know you're not one of the many? Many. Just let that sit for a second because part of the purpose of this passage is, is introspection. To ask, do I, am I doing the will of God? Or am I like these workers of self-righteousness? Because many, he says, will say to me, meaning the self-righteous start their defense. Lord, did we not? And then the list comes. Prophecy in your name. Cast out demons in your name. Do mighty works in your name. My goodness. They're actually calling Jesus into accusation. Jesus, we did all this in your name. Aren't you proud of us? We did all this for you. I don't know. I haven't cast out any demons lately. I haven't healed anybody. I haven't done any mighty works. So, like, what are those for us today? Jesus, I'm a leader in your church. I have my doctrine all figured out. I teach Sunday school. I've raised wonderful children. I serve on all sorts of committees. I've been overseas on mission trips. I'm one of the largest donors in our church. You see where this goes? If you have to parade your righteousness to Jesus, you could be in danger of this passage. This is a classic defense mechanism whenever a proud and self-righteous person is challenged. Oh, you misunderstood me. I was doing all this in your name. But listen to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah spoke a lot about the coming Messiah. And this is what he said in Isaiah 11. There will come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, this David's grandfather. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Now listen to this. He will not judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. You see, there's not gonna be this day where you get to give your defense to Jesus. I mean, you know that whole diagnostic question? If you were to stand before Jesus tonight, what, uh, and he would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That is simply a diagnostic question because Jesus is not gonna have to ask where your allegiance is. 
He's going to know it. He's going to see it fully. Jesus will not be asking us for a defense. He already knows who are his. And so what does he say to these people? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Oh, so this is your defense. Okay, well, here's my judgment. I didn't know you. And I have a, I have a very personal example of how this feels. Um, many of you know my, my story, and man, I've, I've talked about it freely. Um, and when I was, when I was 13, my, my dad left and uh, left us, and, and I saw him for the first time after nine years, uh, and then I didn't see him at all till he died um, earlier last year. But when I, so 13 to 22, nine years, I didn't, I didn't see my father. And, and then at age 22, my grandmother and my aunt in back-to-back weeks committed suicide. And so I had to see my father at their funerals. And so I show up as a 22-year-old, I was playing basketball in college, and I walk up and I see my father for the first time, and he was aghast at me. And this is what he said to me. I only remember you as a little boy playing baseball with your hat on backwards. Well, I hadn't played baseball at that point in nine years. I was a basketball player. And now I was 6'1", 185, not a little boy playing baseball. My father didn't know me. He didn't know me. And that hurt. How much worse would it be for your heavenly father to say, I don't know you? All right, the dagger is in. Let's pull it out. What do we do with this? The question is, does Jesus know you? The subsequent question is, are you doing the will of God? Thankfully, the scriptures don't leave us hanging here. There's multiple passages in the Bible, and I'll give you a few, but the main one we already quoted in our assurance of pardon, that actually say, this is the will of God. I love that because like, I don't, I don't want to live in ambiguity, right? I don't want to live in confusion. Lord, what is your will? If you have your assurance of pardon, you can look at it. I'll, I'll read the passage to you. The very, the very preeminent will of God is that you believe in Jesus. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gives me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Case closed. Not, and does all these other things on my name. No, this is the will, that you believe on the Son. Why? Because if you are in the Son, you are in the kingdom. It's his kingdom. And when you come out from that, you're in an alternate oppressive kingdom. The will of God is to be in the Son. Matthew speaks about he, he, it's, it's just, you could chart the, the book of Matthew through the mountains that he talks about. Here is the sermon on the mount where he talks about the ethics of the kingdom. This is what my kingdom is like. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he has the mount of transfiguration where Jesus goes up with three of his disciples and Elijah and Moses are standing there and God shouts out from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he moves to the The Mount of Golgotha, where the Son of God takes on the wrath of the Father, and the Father turns his face from him because you're in my sin, we're on him, and God killed his only Son. And then you have the Mount 
of the Great Commission where he sends those redeemed men after his resurrection out to a world to tell them, go tell them to believe in everything that I have taught you. Friends, the will of God is that you believe in Christ. Why? Because God is well pleased with his son. And if you are in him, he is well pleased with you. And there are other passages. I encourage you to do this, but just, just listen to some of these. Like, what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It's God's will that you're set apart. It's God's will, will that you're different than the world. It's God's will that you abstain from those harmful behaviors. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's another one. 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Or the Old Testament. The end of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Finally, Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If there's one thing all of those have in common is they're not public. In fact, when Jesus tells us to pray, he said, go to your closet where nobody sees you and pray. All of those things he talks about are the will of God or things that nobody might know you ever did except the God of heaven who looks on your heart. These are the things that the Bible calls fruit. It's fruit of a tree that's firmly planted in divine Jesus. All right, let's apply this and then let's close it. The simple application to start off It's obvious because we're all still here that today is not the day. It could be in the blink of an eye at the trumpet's call. But we're all sitting here and it's not the day, which is good news for the proud because you can repent. You can turn from parading around your self-righteousness and your religious resume and you can turn to Jesus alone. Even for the introspective who keep searching for those those, things Proofs that I'm in Christ. Do you trust Christ? That's all the proof you need. Christ died for you and has raised to new life. Trust him. And then because it's not today, we have the opportunity to examine ourselves. And I wrote in my notes to examine yourself in community. Because if you're like me, I can get dark and chase spirals real fast if I start examining myself alone. I have friends around me that say, Will, you know, what you did and said yesterday was, was pretty arrogant, was pretty self-righteous, and they, they tell me that. And then I have friends that say, Will, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. You need those kind of friends in your life because to examine ourselves is not to beat ourselves up and try to measure up to Christ. It's to remind us that we are in Christ and I have a certain place there. All right. As I thought about this, this whole sermon, it, it's, a heavy, it's heavy, I understand. And if you're, if you're here for the first time and this is all new to you, I'm, you know, I'm sorry but not sorry that you came on a heavy Sunday. But let me, try to, let me try to zoom us out. 
as I, as I prayed about this, and I prayed about this passage maybe more than I've ever prayed one, uh, preached, that I was going to preach, the image of a child kept coming to my mind. Because sophisticated adults like to make defenses for their behavior, and sophisticated adults like to tell you all that they've done, and a child is just an innocent child. And I think that's why Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Because childlike faith gives us, some, uh, gives us a picture. And there's this, there's, this, there's this picture in Revelation 5, when on that day, when the throne room, in the throne room of God, when the, the will of God is exposed, the, 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 the people from all over the world, it says they sang a new song. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and you made them a kingdom to our God. And I thought, man, a child singing. That's the picture of faith. So then I thought, well, you know what? I'm gonna close this heavy sermon with a Jesus storybook Bible version of this passage. What would Sally Lloyd-Jones say about the Sermon on the Mount? Just listen to this language. Jesus knew that God would always love and watch over the world he had made. Everything in it. Birds, flowers, trees, animals, everything. And most of all, his children. Even though people had forgotten, the birds and the flowers had not forgotten. They still knew their song. It was the song all of God's creation had sung to him from the very beginning. It was the song people's hearts were made to sing. God made us. He loves us. He is very pleased with us. It is why Jesus had come into the world to sing them that wonderful song, to sing it not only with his voice, but with his whole life so that God's children could remember it and join in and sing it too. Friends, we're gonna sing a song of praise to Jesus and your works of righteousness are not gonna be on display. His work of utter righteousness will be the display. May you find yourself in Christ this morning. Amen? Let's pray and then let's come and feast on our Savior. Oh God, only you can take a heavy, hard sermon like this and apply it. There are some here that need to hear the very hard words that you had to say that day. And I pray that they would not turn a hard heart to you, that you would soften their heart, you would quicken their spirit, that you would provide that strangely warm feeling of your embrace. Lord, for those of us who heard this sermon and immediately went to a dark place of self-introspection, I pray that they would sing a new song this morning. They would lift their eyes up and see the Savior who is well-pleased to you. And they would cast themselves on the sun this morning. For those that are wounded, for those that have been oppressed and abused by self-righteous people, pray that this morning they would find their healing in the one who said he would not bruise a reed, a broken reed, and he would not squelch out a smoldering wick. Your burden is easy, your yoke is light. And I pray that 
these friends would come and find their rest in you. Lord, now as we come to this table, I pray that these elements in their rudimentary form would be an eternal meal to our soul. And then as we sing the song that says, my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast, that we will remember it is the strength of your grip that we are relying on. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.